0: Dave Robinson here. You're listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. And I'm on the roof of the Hayburn Building in downtown Louisville. I can see the Brown Hotel just across the street on one side. Then there's the main library on the other side. It's actually really nice up here. The reason I'm up here is I'm climbing the WFMP radio antenna which is on top of the Hayburn building. It's a beautiful sight up here. Now, you might be wondering, why am I up here? Uh, Let me get situated here. Okay, okay. it's really hard climbing with this microphone in my hand. Anyway, the reason I'm up here on the roof is because this week is our semi-annual fundraising drive for Forward Radio. We're trying to raise enough money to keep this station going. Louisville really needs a community-run, non-profit, non-commercially supported radio station to tell people what's going on in the world and our city. And this Thursday, September 15th, is the citywide "Give for Good Louisville Drive. There's a lot of good charities you could contribute to that day, but I can't think of a better way to support systemic societal changes and not just social band-aids, Then a good alternative radio station. And Ford Radio isn't receiving money from Rupert Murdoch or big corporate sponsors like the other big radio stations do. Take National Public Radio, for instance, NPR. There's at least eight corporate sponsors that have each given a million dollars to keep NPR going. And then there's at least another 17 corporations that have given at least a half a million dollars. So after receiving all of this corporate sponsorship, is NPR really going to challenge the top-heavy corrupt capitalism system we now live in? I don't think so. The only sponsorship money we get are from some local grassroots social activist groups and our listeners. That means you, So this Thursday, September 15th, go to giveforgoodlouisville.org and search for Forward Radio. Donate what you can afford. And in recognition of Give for Good Louisville, Bench Talk the Week in Science is having a special show this week. And that's why I'm up here, risking my life, climbing this antenna on top of a 17-floor building. It's because it's our fourth year anniversary. Actually, we've been on the air for four years last month, August of 2022, but we wanted to wait until now because this particular episode is our 150th episode of Bench Talk, and I'm up here celebrating. In recognition of this, we're devoting the entire episode this week to a series called How'd We Ever Get That? The goal of How'd We Ever Get That is to demonstrate how scientists mathematicians, designers, engineers, etc., how they've influenced our everyday lives. You might not think science has much to do with you, but you would be wrong. Science affects us all every single day of our lives, and today we're going to give you numerous examples of great inventions or concepts. Well, here's our first example of how'd we ever get that. It's a delicious topic.
1: Dippin' Dots. Here's a fun story about how a microbiologist working in Kentucky in the late 80s to improve animal feed ended up creating a tasty product that's enjoyed by people throughout the world at amusement parks, fairs, and zoos. We talked to Kurt Jones, who called in to tell us how his science background helped him create the frozen treat Dippin' Dots. Well,
2: I I grew up on a farm in southern Illinois, and I've Ended up going to Southern Illinois University, and I got a bachelor's and a master's degree in microbiology. Of course, microbiology usually people think of medical, you know, things, but I, I always liked the industrial side, and it eventually led me to a job down at Alltech, which is you know down in Nicholasville, Kentucky, and we were actually producing what's now known as probiotics to put back in animal feeds. So the way that all this happened is that they were doing it one way. And as we started to grow and I was in charge of all the production of that, I started playing around with liquid nitrogen as a way to freeze the bacteria before freeze drying. Uh, They had been doing it in, in thin sheets to get a quick freeze. And by the way, you want a quick freeze because if you freeze something quickly, your ice crystals are smaller. And so more of the cells could survive the freezing and the freeze drying process. Anyway, I started playing with liquid nitrogen and I found that, you know, I could freeze the cultures using liquid nitrogen a couple of different ways. I could pour the nitrogen in the cultures or I could pour the cultures in the nitrogen. But I found that if I were to drip it in or dribble it in at the time, I could make little pellets or little beads. And, uh, you know, after playing with that for a while, it kind of gave me the idea to do uh, ice cream that way. Because when you make ice cream, you really want to freeze it as fast as you can to get smaller ice crystals. And so that's kind of how the science background kind of brought me around to experimenting with, you know, freezing little balls of ice cream.
1: Jones sold the Dippin' Dots company in 2012. Now he uses his knowledge of cryogenic technology to develop new frozen products.
2: Yes, I have a new venture started out as 40 Below Joe, which is actually little beads of coffee mixed with non-dairy creamers such as coconut milk, almond milk, flavored with you know natural flavors like salted caramel and French vanilla and mocha. But we're slowly evolving into just the 40 Below company because we have other products that we're coming out with that are also cryogenically frozen in bees. For example, we have a, uh, a mocktail, if you will, that would be like a margarita, pina colada, strawberry daiquiri, mango margarita that are little beets of fruit-based products that you can consume with or without alcohol. We found out during the many years that we promoted and sold Dippin' Dots that, you know, people are really taken by that, uh, that little cold bead, and I think whenever we... Uh, We now give them coffee and beads or island rocks or or the little fruit beads. You know, you still get that same reaction that you would have 30 years ago when someone tries it. It's just, it's cold and refreshing.
1: That was Kurt Jones. We thank him for joining us and reminding us of one more of the ways that science has brought delight to our lives.
0: Thanks to Rob Weber of the Kentucky Academy of Science for that story and congratulations to Kurt Jones for his clever and tasty inventions. As you can tell, I've left the roof of the Hayburn building and now it's nighttime and I'm out in the country where I'm trying to set the scene for our next story. It's J. Scott Miller of Maysville Community and Technical College. He's going to tell us about the next invention. (laughs)
3: Telescopes. When were they invented and what is their future? Galileo is credited with first using a telescope to view and record the wonders of the universe, but they were first mentioned in a patent application in the Netherlands. Drawings and early examples likely caught Galileo's eye. Simple in design, his refractors consisted of a tube with glass lenses at each end. His largest could provide magnification of about 30 times what the eye could see. Fast forward to Isaac Newton. His idea was to use spherical mirrors, mirrors ground as if part of the inside of a sphere, to focus then redirect the light. His interest was overcoming some of the deficiency in lenses at the time, including bubbles in the glass and chromatic aberration, the breaking of the light from sources into prismatic color around those sources. Though another design referred to as a Cassegrain would be definitively advantageous, especially when larger mirrors became the need, The Newtonian reflector still finds its place, especially with amateur astronomers. As I mentioned, size became the issue as getting bigger collecting surfaces meant more like gathering and image resolution. Refracting telescopes reached their pinnacle with the advances in lens design that helped overcome chromatic aberration and other defects. Size would be the ultimate limitation. Large lenses mean much more mass, Yerkes Observatory located north of Chicago, became the biggest refractor at 40 inches in diameter. But one could support mirrors from behind the reflecting surface, allowing ever larger mirrors to be constructed for telescopes. At one time, 100 inches was the largest telescope that used by Edwin Hubble to make his discovery of the expanding universe, as well as cataloging galaxy types located on Mount Wilson in California. Then came the 200 inch telescope on Mount Palomar. This one was big enough The observer literally could ride in the observing cage during runs. The largest single mirror reflector is about 323 inches in diameter. Segmented mirrors allow for even larger collecting surfaces, up to 409 inches at present. But as the rush to gather more light was being pursued, radio wavelengths were also found to be capturable. And larger and larger radio dishes, initially singly and then in combinations known as interferometers, were used to get higher and higher resolution in the radio bands. Ultimately moving telescopes above Earth's churning atmosphere has been the goal. Space telescopes not only overcome the limitations of looking through moving air, but also capture parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that don't pass through that air. Astronomers now can study objects across many different wavelength bands by combining imagery captured by such scopes as Hubble, in the visible, Chandra, X-ray, Compton, gamma ray, spitzer infrared just to name a few now web has joined with those above that are still active with an even larger collecting surface to provide even better resolution in the infrared new discoveries continue to be made of the many objects within our universe
0: thanks a lot scott and now i'm in a local pet store in order to record some ambient sounds for our next installment of how'd we ever get that i'm in the rodent section of the pet store very interesting animals rats are kind of cute i guess but they're also a little disturbing but you know scientists can learn a lot from studying rats like this and not just at the physiological level either rats can be used to study the evolution of behavior too well, we've got a guest contributor today to give us an example of this. It's Caroline Driscoll Braden, a PhD student in biology at the University of Louisville. What behavioral trait is Caroline going to tell us about? Hang on! <laughs> Empathy.
4: Hi everyone, I'm Carolyn driscoll Brayden, and I'm working on my PhD in biology at the University of Louisville, and I'll be discussing empathy in other animals. So let's start with a running definition of empathy from the father of empathy in other animals himself, Franz de Waal, who defines it as the capacity to be affected by and share the emotional state of another, and also to have the ability to discern what is causing their emotional state. Originally, studies into this started where you'd expect, in highly intelligent, super-social, long-lived species like chimps, bonobos, elephants, and dolphins, but to continue investigating the evolution of empathy and the neuroendocrine mechanisms underlying empathy, studies turn to smaller-brained animals with similar qualities, like rats and prairie voles. My dissertation research has built off the work of Imbal Banami Bartal, who discovered that rats would work to release another rat That was distressed due to being trapped in a restrainer Uh, they set this up by outfitting a restrainer with a door that could only be opened from the outside and she found that the free rat would continue to open this restrainer door for a trapped individual under a bunch of different circumstances so our study looked at exploring the effects of two other additions to this paradigm study first we added an escape area where the free rat could retreat to where the distress cues of that trapped individual were greatly minimized. And we did this so that the free rat could escape to minimize their own distress because maybe they're helping that trapped rat because it's stressing them out. So the easiest way to reduce their own personal distress would be to go to that escape area. Second, we added a cost that had to be incurred to open the restrainer door. Because often in the real world, helping another individual comes at some cost or risk, great or small. And so since rats don't like being soaked in water, we created a cold water barrier that separated the free rat from that restrainer. And then we also had appropriate control conditions for comparisons. And spoiler alert, uh, there was a slight decrease when that cost was present, but there was no significant difference in the frequency of helping behavior when a cost was present versus when a cost was absent. And remember, this is even when that option to escape and ameliorate the personal distress was available. And so all of this allows us to add to that growing evidence that rats are capable of a more sophisticated form of empathy than originally thought. And this can help to provide insight into how empathy evolved, but can also help us understand human disorders marked by a lack of empathy, by understanding what brain regions and neurotransmitters are involved in empathy and helping behavior. So I hope you enjoyed this little journey and have a new positive perspective on rats.
0: Thanks to Caroline Driscoll Braden for that story. I've now moved to a new spot to introduce our next story. I'm at a farm in southern Indiana. And here's a contributor we've heard from before, Mary Williams. She's she's going to tell us how these animals came to be on this next installment of How Do We Ever Get That? Chickens
5: Hi everyone, this is Mary and thank you for listening. A question we often ask ourselves is, What's for dinner tonight? Unless you are a serious vegetarian, there is a good chance that your next meal will contain chicken. The chicken is the most popular domesticated fowl with a population of over 80 billion living animals on the earth. Chickens are raised worldwide for both their meat and their eggs. But it wasn't always this way. Have you ever wondered how chicken became such an important part of our diet? Scientists have published several papers recently on the origin and domestication of chickens. This is good because there has been a lot of contradictory evidence about the taming of this comical but amazing animal. These researchers didn't just look at skeletal structures and archaeological samples like they have in the past, They examined DNA, too. One study published in Cell Research in July of 2020 took such a genetic approach. They sequenced the DNA of 863 different chickens and potential chicken predecessors. All of the animals were in the genus Gallus. Some of them were domesticated chickens and some of them were wild birds that are considered likely predecessors to the domestic chicken of today. These would be colorful tropical birds in the pheasant family. The green jungle fowl, the red jungle fowl, the gray jungle fowl, and the Ceylon jungle fowl. They compared the DNA sequences between these 863 animals and generated a family tree that indicates that the most likely precursor to the modern chicken is the red jungle fowl, Gallus gallus spadiceus, a tropical bird that looks very much like a chicken. In fact, it looks so much like the modern-day chicken that even Charles Darwin predicted more than 160 years ago, that it was the probable ancestor to the domestic chicken. Just like chickens, red jungle fowl can't fly very well. The hens cluck, and the roosters cock-a-doodle-doo, just like modern chickens. Red jungle fowl live naturally in southwestern China, Thailand, and Myanmar. It's thought that once the red jungle fowl became domesticated, The animals got transported across Southeast and South Asia, where they interbred locally with other red jungle fowl, as well as other species of jungle fowl. So genetically, modern chickens are really quite a blend of different species of jungle fowl. Another paper was published in the June 6, 2022 issue of Proceedings of the National Academy of Science that sheds more light on how these wild fowls became domesticated. They studied the ancient remains of domesticated chickens collected at more than 600 sites in 89 countries. The oldest bones of an obviously domesticated chicken were found in central Thailand and were radiocarbon dated to sometime between 1650 and 1250 BCE, before the Common Era. So that's about 3,500 years ago. This means that chickens showed up much more recently than researchers previously believed, and thousands of years after Other farm animals, like pigs, sheep, or cattle, were domesticated. One of the reasons that researchers think these animals were domesticated 3,500 years ago is because they have been buried in human graves as grave goods, along with domestic pigs, dogs, and cattle. Now, domestic chickens didn't show up in other places, like Central China, South Asia, or Mesopotamia, until hundreds of years after their appearance in Southeast Asia, and chickens weren't raised in Ethiopia or southern Europe for a few hundred years after that, so it took a while for chickens to spread to other parts of the globe. The first domesticated chicken found in Europe was in Italy some 2,800 years ago. And it took another thousand years before chickens reached the British Isles, Scandinavia, or Iceland, probably brought there by Roman invaders. Since red jungle fowl evolved in the tropics, it must have taken time for them to adapt to those colder climates. But the Roman army needed food. And chickens are omnivores that can convert just about anything they eat into meat which prompted the wider consumption of chicken meat and chicken eggs. This paper also reported that the early domestication of chickens seemed to be correlated with the spread of two agricultural crops, rice and millet. The authors thought that these two crops were being grown in regions where the red jungle fowl naturally resided. These grain crops attracted the attention of the red jungle fowl, as perhaps the birds found the rice and millet a good source of nutrition. In today's world, red jungle fowl are found naturally in slash-and-burn agricultural lands where the natural forest has been removed by farmers. The theory goes that since these birds prefer disturbed land, like rice land, It drew them closer to human populations and eventually brought about their domestication. A paper published in Frontiers of Psychology in June 2021 reported that even today, red jungle fowl chicks will specifically seek out contact with people when they are young. These kind of human-directed behaviors are pretty rare in wild animals but they do occur in the precursors of dogs, horses, and goats. There just seems to be a special bond between us humans and dogs, horses, goats, and chickens. It is speculated that early domesticated chickens were not used for their meat or eggs like we use them now, but rather were revered as exotic and sacred creatures. Archaeologists have reported that it took a long time before the bones of chickens found in old trash heaps actually showed cut marks indicating that they were butchered. The animals were pretty small at first, so didn't produce a lot of meat, and were probably traded for their colorful feathers and perhaps for their morning crowing at first light. Our first alarm clock? Ancient artists depicted the high egg-laying ability of hens as symbols of fertility and maternal nurturing, while roosters symbolized virility and fighting spirit. It apparently took another 500 years after domestication before chickens began to be raised specifically for meat and eggs. Archaeologists have commented on how chickens aren't mentioned in the Old Testament of the Bible, but are frequently referred to in the New Testament. These animals became more important with time. Chickens gain weight really efficiently, and red jungle fowl are referred to in Southeast Asia as bamboo fowl because they take advantage of the cyclical mass flowering of bamboo. Bamboo generally remains vegetative for decades of its life, even 100 years for one bamboo species, before it will flower. And when bamboo does finally flower, it does so synchronously. All the bamboo plants in that species will flower at the same time. Of course, flowers make seeds, which fall to the ground and eventually germinate, to grow more bamboo. Well, certain animals have evolved to take advantage of this rare and short-lived bamboo shoot feast. These animals can eat a lot and gain weight really fast. Who are these bamboo gluttons? Well, pigs for one, rats are another, and you guessed it, chickens! As you well know, chicken is consumed by peoples all around the world, and it is now the single largest source of animal protein in the human diet. It is one of the least expensive forms of meat and a good source of healthy lean protein. Its mild flavor makes it the perfect complement for the grains, spices, and herbs that ethnic foods are famous for. Chickens are bred on every continent except Antarctica and are the most successful domesticated animal on the planet. Chickens outnumber people by 10 to 1. So, while we may not know which came first, the chicken or the egg, we do know, through science, a little more about how 3,500 years ago the wild red jungle fowl of Southeast Asia became a very important part of our diet today. This is Mary Williams, signing off. Thank you.
0: Thanks to Mary Williams for that story. I'm at a coffee shop now. At a poetry reading, actually. I'm just waiting for the next poet to come up. Oh, there she is now. It's Dr. Leslie Moise. Bench Talk's very own poet in residence. And she's written a poem for just this occasion. Shh, here she is now.
6: How did we get that? How did humanity learn not just to heat food? so it felt blood warm, but to cook it from raw to medium to well-done steak, soft to crusty potatoes, pasta al dente to baked macaroni and cheese. How did we proceed from walking to running, from riding a horse to driving a chariot, a cart, a carriage, from pedaling a bike to driving a car, a convertible? From watching birds fly across the sky, to flying a kite ourselves, flying an airplane, a rocket, landing the rover on Mars. We dared to swim in rivers, the ocean. Then we floated in a boat, sailed in ship, dove below the surface in submarines, explored the ocean floor in sea stations. How did we accomplish all that? Well, first we stared into the fire, warming our bodies, our caves, and we gazed up into the skies, watched the ocean rippling across to the horizon, and allowed ourselves to wonder, what's it like up, down, over there? Then we put our imaginations to work, used our minds to make our hands create, shaped those dreams into a newly formed world.